Well, good morning, officially. So we have been, for the past year, considering the book of Matthew, and we have considered the fact that um, Matthew, a uh, Jew, was writing to Jewish people about the Jewish Messiah, and um, we have transitioned over the last couple of weeks into this final week of Jesus' life. The majority of the book of Matthew is all about that last week of Jesus' life. And so we've spent now nine weeks in that, that segment, and uh, we're going to spend even more time as we go through this final phase of Jesus' earthly life, if you would, and that is the, the phase of his sacrifice. Um, that's why he came. That was the whole purpose of his coming, was for this moment. And, um, and so as we go through it, um, we see that, again, God's purpose, which he has declared throughout his word, is going to come together in such a beautiful way. Um, in it, we as well see Jesus is God. That God, Yahweh, came in the flesh that only God, as we're going to see as we go on, only God can make this payment. This isn't a payment that a man can make. But it was going to require a perfect sacrifice, and Jesus is going to be that. Last week, we considered the preparation of his sacrifice. As we saw Mary, we saw three phases, but the one that was really that we focus on was Mary um, breaking that alabaster jar of um, ointment, perfume, pouring it upon Jesus' head and his feet. Does anybody remember anything about that alabaster jar of ointment? It was expensive. How expensive? Really expensive, yeah. Like a whole year's wages worth of expensive, okay? And so an amazing thing that, that Mary um, did as an act of devotion for Jesus. So at the end, though, of that moment, at, when that happens and she does that, there is an individual who we know to be Judas who inspires the disciples to, to kind of be upset about that, that event. And, and the comment was about this waste, such a waste. We, we could have sold this for 300 denarii, and that's why we know that it was worth a, a year's wages. Okay? And we could have then used it on the poor. Okay? Good Seemingly good thing, but we know that it wasn't from the perspective of Jesus' response. The poor you always have with you, me you only have one. She, she has done this for my anointing, for my burial, and whenever the gospel is preached, what she has done will also um, be spoken about as well. From that moment, that was two days before the Passover, now we get into this final time, the night before Jesus is going to be crucified. Okay? And... Um, Weeks ago, I, I put out a, um, so if you want one of these, I, I can print you one of these, but weeks ago, in fact, Richard, I think it was the last time you were here. It was, wasn't it? Because we talked about it. Um, anyways, um, that this, this schedule. So if you want one of these schedule kind of things, it's kind of like a, the, the, the timing of, of the, the Passion Week and Jesus is coming and stuff like that. And again, why I believe that Jesus died on a Thursday, not on a Friday, Okay. Um, and so you'll see that again in a few weeks when we come to, to the actual crucifixion, because I'm going to talk about that a little bit more with the timing, okay? And um, 
But in that, there is a timing. And again, God's word gives us specific details. And Jimmy, I appreciate your testimony because that's ex- you, you've been listening, we've been learning, right? And, and God's word has got this chronology in it. I mean, and, and for anybody who wants to study it, who wants to take the time to learn it, he's got it there for us to learn. And so, sadly, this guy says, right, I've read it seven times, but I know a man has written it. Well, you haven't really read it then. You know, and so, you know, um, to, to really read God's word and ask for his insight is just an amazing thing. Again, as we talked about in Sunday school with, you know, with Nebuchadnezzar and Alexander and the details of, of the prophecy of Tyre and, and what God has done. It's just an amazing thing to me. I, it's just, I can't believe for years I didn't know. Make sense? And so after you come to know Christ and you start reading his word, you start to realize what he has revealed out there for us if we just take the time to learn it. So, so we're coming now to the night in which Jesus was betrayed. Okay, the, the night before he's going to be crucified. This is what was called the day of preparation. This is what um, in Exodus chapter 12 would be referred to as the day of Passover, literally, because the Passover lamb wouldn't be crucified until the, what we would consider the next day. Again, remember, for the Jewish mind, okay, the, Jewish, the, the day began at 6 o'clock okay, in the evening, and it ends at 6 o'clock in the evening, or sundown to sundown. Okay? In my brain, our brains, it's kind of easy to just kind of put 6 p.m. there. Okay? That kind of helps us to, to put something there. So Jesus is getting ready to have his dinner... His Passover dinner a day early is what's going to happen. Now, this isn't a, uh, an out-of-the-way the mindset. There was the Essenes, who were a Jewish sect, who actually celebrated Passover the night before everybody else did. And so there are many people who believe, based upon this, that Jesus actually affiliated with the Essenic group um, during his days on the earth. There's a belief that John the Baptist, since he was out in the wilderness was with the group of Essenes, and so that he was Essenic as well. So, anyways, those are just little background notes to kind of bring you together what's going on here, okay? So, Jesus then is going to celebrate this, and his disciples are going to come to him, and they're going to say, you know, where do you want us to, to prepare this? And then, we're going to, this is where we get into this, right? And Jesus is going to talk to them. And so, as we go into this, um, this passage, the first thing we see is the instructions that Jesus gives to his disciples, okay? Now, this is kind of interesting to me because we're going to blend this together with what we read elsewhere as well. But we're told that Jesus tells the disciples here to go and make ready, right? But we're told in, chapter, in Luke chapter 22 a little bit more detail about it, okay? Luke being the doctor, he gives us some more details. He said, And Jesus therefore sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. So he said to him, So they said to him, where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, you will meet a man carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished upper room there make ready. So they went and found it just as he had said, and they prepared the Passover. What's really exciting about this to me is the omniscience of Christ. Who is omniscient? God. But Jesus gives, gives his disciples some good details. He doesn't say, hey, I've already worked this thing out. Harry's going to meet you. 
if you just go down by the well, Harry's going to be down by the well at that time. And uh, just you'll meet Harry by the well. Harry will take you over to Harvey's house because I've already worked it out with Harvey that we're going we're gonna to meet in Harvey's upper room. The disciples were with Jesus how often? All the time. He hadn't been in Jerusalem to work out the details. In fact, when he was in Jerusalem earlier, where was he? Temple. Temple. What was he doing? Teaching. Well, teaching the Pharisees. He was teaching, but it really was. Well, I mean, he was teaching Pharisees, but he was what? There was, there was the, the fights, if you would, the spiritual battles going on there, okay? He wasn't um, just kind of having a, a joy, joyous trip around Jerusalem, okay? So, so the disciples, they said, well, you know, okay, we're, we're getting ready to do this. Where do you want us to do it? And so Jesus says to them, I mean, why couldn't he just say, why don't you go to Harry's house? My father's put it on the heart of Harry to, to, to let me use his house. He doesn't do it. He wants his disciples to understand what we need to understand. And that he knows what? He knows everything. He knows what this guy's about to do before he's even going to do it. The guy doesn't, I mean, I don't know who this guy was. We never read about his name. I mean, it could be Shlomo, you know, whatever, you know. Pick whatever Jewish name you want to put out there, right? And, and he's just kind of, you know, the servant of this house. And, and at this moment, the guy decides what? Hey, Shlomo, go out and get some water, you know? And while Shlomo's out getting water at the well and bringing it back, all of a sudden these two disciples happen to show up in Jerusalem. Do you think there was other people that day who were going to the well and getting water who might have carried a pitcher? Wouldn't it be kind of confusing if there were two people at the same moment? Or three? Or four? Wow. Which guy am I supposed to... Anyways, I I just think of the details here. It's just so phenomenal. I don't want to make a whole lot more of it other than the fact that God knows every detail that every individual is going to do. David says in Psalm 139, if I flee into the depths, you are, you're there. If I go into the heavens... You're there. You know what I'm going to say before I do. Before it's ever on my tongue, you already knew what I was going to say. It's an amazing thing. There's comfort in that. There's concern in that. Yes. Get it? Conviction. That's exactly right. Okay? And it should be that tender balance, the love of God, the fear of God, that comes together. God loves me with an everlasting love, and yet he still is my dad, my Abba, who's going to chasten me when I need it. Does it make sense? And so if you think that you can go hide in a darkened room, think again. God knows everything about you. He knows what you're going to do tomorrow. Isn't that kind of mind-boggling? Tomorrow's already happened. You just haven't experienced it. That's kind of cool, isn't it? All right? So the instructions of the disciple brings out the omniscience of the Messiah, which is really kind of exciting because we're going to move on now to the indictment of the betrayer. And the first thing we're going to see in the indictment of the betrayer is... The omniscience of the Messiah. It's kind of like this is a theme coming through here, which we're going to see even at the, the third point, okay? And so what do we see here when he talks to, this, to, to Judas? In the midst of this beautiful thing that's going to go on, right? Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen. And he says that the hand of my betrayer, surely one of you are going to betray me, right? And so instantly it starts out this, this questioning. 
Who is it? Is it me? Is it me? Is it me? Now, this is the, this is the discussion that we see more in Luke chapter 22, and then it played out in John 13. Okay? That in Luke 22, we read that all of a sudden there's this battle, this discussion of who's the greatest. Okay? Because it goes from, from a concern that I could be the betrayer to, well, it couldn't be me. Make sense? And then it transitions into the, because I am the, the greatest. You know, this battle of the, who, the greatest. In the middle of this battle of who is the greatest, we know from John chapter 13, that Jesus kind of gets up. No one's paying attention to Jesus anymore. They're all focusing on themselves. They want to know who, who, who's the, the betrayer. Well, it can't be me. Well, if it can't be me, it ought to be you and all this kind of stuff. And Jesus stands up in the midst of all that. He takes off his outer robe. He goes over to the, to the corner because the, the bull would be there by the door. Okay? And he takes the towel, wraps it around himself, picks up the bull. Nobody knows what's going on. All of a sudden, he comes up to Peter. And they're all reclining, so his feet are kind of out. Make sense? So it wasn't like he had to go under the table. You know, we think of how we eat. You know, it wasn't like Jesus is climbing under the table to get to Peter's feet. Okay? They're all reclining at the table, and Jesus comes and he starts washing Peter's feet. What do you do? Whoa! You know, could you imagine? It's kind of like the dog coming up and licking your feet when you're involved in something else. You know, I don't know if your dog ever licked your feet, but anyways, he's like, whoa! Stop! Stop! Anyways, so Jesus comes and he starts washing Peter's feet, and Peter's kind of like, you know, Lord, what are you doing? He says, Well, if you're with me, you got to be clean, right? Well, Lord, wash all of me then, you know? He said, no, no, you don't understand it. I don't need to wash all you. Anyways, so that's all going on at this moment, okay? But the omniscience part is that Jesus saying, he knows it. He already knows that Judas has been to the chief priests, right? And he's getting paid 30 pieces of silver to betray him. And yet Jesus, think about this. What would you, how would you act? Let me just put, that, just put it out there. How would you act? You're at the table, and the guy's sitting there. He's fellowshipping with you, and you know it. You know it. He just, I mean, talking about not having your back and not just throwing you under the bus, it's a big bus. He just went and got paid to turn you in so you could be killed. Would you kind of have him at your dinner table? There's a great debate whether G- Judas actually participated in the Last Supper. He did. I mean, people don't want to believe that he was there because they think this is only for believers. And I agree that it's only for believers. But ultimately, we don't stand there and, and check your card. You know, we don't look for the, the mark on your forehead. Aha! I don't see the mark. You know, you can't have it. You know, whatever. The, we don't do that, right? The, the, so... Judas is sitting there for this event. This is an amazing thing. And so, so I was asked, well, who is it? He said, well, it's the one who dips his hand with me. You know, and it's just kind of interesting because he's given hints toward this, who it is. But even when Judas eventually leaves, okay, this is from Mark and, and, and John, when, when he finally leaves, the other disciples just think he's going to go buy stuff. You asked, who was it, right? And he says to Judas, when he goes to leave, he says, what you're going to do do it quickly. Don't, don't, don't put this thing off. This is pretty amazing. So again, I put myself in this spot, and I say to myself, would I have said that? <laughs> you're going to betray me, so I can die. So what you're going to do? Go do it quickly. No! I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call this guy out, right? Uh, hey, that's the guy. He's not going to betray anybody at this point, right? 
Isn't that the way the world thinks? But Jesus humbled himself and willingly took up the cross. What's getting ready to happen? He already knows. He's known it from the time that he was 12 years old. Probably before that. But we know that from God's word, that he knew that he'd be about his father's business. Could you imagine? He's 33. We can debate on ages, okay? We'll say 33 for the sake of um, argument right now. So for 21 years, probably more, he's lived his life knowing that he was going to die. And when he chose Judas as one of his 12, he knew who he'd be. And I just think, wow, God, how shallow I am sometimes. How self-focused I am sometimes. And I miss the greater plan of God. God has a purpose. God has a plan. And I need to be able to, to get out of my own little, it's all about me, to figure out what's God's plan, what's God's purpose. The omniscience of Jesus is just amazing here. Um, when he as he deals with Judas. But then we have the counsel of God that we were just talking about. In verse 24, where it says, The Son of Man indeed goes, just as it is what? Written of Him. The Son of Man goes, just as it is written about Him. This is all planned. Psalm 22. David wrote about it. I mean, all the way back... With the first real king, I mean, I get Saul was the real king, right? But David, the Davidic um, kingdom, okay, going forth from there, is writing about who Messiah is. Job, Job, who lived between the time of Noah and Abram, the first, the first book historically that we have biblically in the Bible, says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and I will see him face to face, in the flesh. That's an amazing thing. The whole concept of the redemption by God of mankind has always been out there. In fact, it started, when was the first real indicator that this was going to happen? In the garden. When? Yes. Did you say curse? Yes. Okay. I would just process what you said. The cur- part of the curse. It's a blessing in the midst of the curse. I mean, he's cursing them, right? And yet in the midst of the curse of the woman, he says, and that the, your seed will crush the seed of the, of the, of the snake, of the, of the serpent, who was Satan. Just an amazing thing. So, so all the way from the beginning, this... this thing is playing out. And we know from the writings of Paul that even before then Adam and Eve were, were, were created, that God had already determined that the son would come and he would die. So before God ever made man, he knew man would sin. Mind-boggling. Oh, the, the wisdom of the counsel of God. Who can know the mind of God? Read Romans chapter 10 and, and talking about who has known the mind of God, who's been his counselor. It's just so amazing what, what God has done. But the next side of that, the next part of that verse says, um, where he says, The Son of Man indeed goes as it has been written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. 
it would have been better, it would have been good for that man if he had not been born. The reality of eternal condemnation. Think about this. If there was annihilation, if, if there was no, no hell, no eternal separation from God, then what did he lose? What did Judas lose? Nothing. Because he wouldn't know. He died and it's done. In the dirt. But it would be better for this guy if he had never been born. Because if he would never been born, then what? He wouldn't do any of this and he wouldn't even know. But now he's going to live eternally under the condemnation of God. Small little point, but it's a huge point. The reality is that everybody lives forever. So, hear what I'm saying in context. Everybody has eternal life. Everybody has eternal existence. The question is, exactly right, where? And it's not going to be where, Miss Ex-Catholic. It's not going to be in purgatory, is it? It's not in purgatory. It's exciting. Come on now. Okay? It's not in purgatory. Purgatory is not biblical. There are a lot of people think that they're going to, it's okay. They'll just work their way out of it. When you die, it's done. It's, the decision's there. I, I pray that God is, a, that in His grace, even at, his, at, the, at, the, at the judgment seat, maybe He gives people a chance to repent. I don't see it biblically, but if He wants to do that, praise God for His grace, right? I mean, I just. I would love to know that everybody got to experience the joy of being in his presence, regardless whether they wasted their years on the earth or whatever. But that's not what he says in his word. He talks about eternal condemnation. It's not something to be played with. Too many people think, I'll do it later. I'll take care of that later. And then later never comes until it's too late. Woe be... For that man, it was better for him if he had never been born. I just want to challenge you to look at your neighbors that way. Look at them with pity. Look at them with mercy. I mean, the ones who don't know Christ, rather than being upset and angered, they don't know. And and when I die, I know I'm going to be in the presence of God. I don't mean that pridefully and arrogantly. That's humbly. And the reality is that individual, they don't know. And when they die, though, they are going to know. Richard Dawkins, he's a God-hater. Do you pray for him? One day he's going to die. And you know what? He's going he's to find the misery of all eternity. And I know, I know, he deserved it. But so do I. Does that make sense? Except but the grace of God. There go I. So when I look at Judas, I just think of the grace of God. He rejected it. Jesus allowed him even at this table. Do you get it? All the way to the end. To show him his great love. And Judas rejected it. We get to the third point, which is really the, the, the major point of this passage, and that's the institution of the Lord's Supper, which is a, an incredible um, 
Jewish feast festivity that has been taken to bring brought as a commemoration to us. And as Gentiles, some of you may have Jewish roots or whatever, um, but as a whole, as Gentiles, that we participate in this Passover, if you would, celebration. Okay? It's really where it began. It begins with the concept of Israel being brought out of the land of Egypt and God delivering them from their Egypt. And we're told, biblically, that our Egypt is... What's Egypt? Sin. That's exactly right. And that God has delivered us from Egypt. He's delivered us from our sin. And how did God do that for Israel? What did he do? Think back on this. So he sent Moses. So he sent somebody with the message. Say again. That's the last part. That's the last part. So first he, he sends Moses and Aaron, right? He sends the word, right? Then what happens? Say again. The signs, okay, the, 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 if you would. But what were those signs? Miracles, okay, signs and miracles. Wonders, okay. Plagues. But what were they? On what? They were judgments. On the Egyptian gods. God was showing them, the Egyptians, and the Israelites who were living in the midst of Egypt, that he was the true God, that all these other things were not God, they were false gods, and that there, there was no power in them. And so he begins to wipe out the, the, all the, the naturalistic, quote-unquote, gods of Egypt. So when you come to the tenth plague, what God reveals is that he's the God even over life itself. And that he can snuff out the life of whoever he chooses at that moment. Now, in that very moment, when he does this, okay, in the last couple of plagues, he's showing the difference between how he differs between Egypt and Israel, right? Okay, with the darkness and the light and that kind of stuff. But when he comes into this one, when he comes into this 10th plague, think about it. It's not, it's going to only happen to the Egyptians, but it's not going to happen here in Goshen. It's not how it's worded. Rather, when he brings this plague, he, he states with this plague that there's a special thing that has to happen. They have to do what? Say, Brian? They have to prepare the blood. They have to get the goat or the sheep, the lamb, right? It's got to be without blemish. And he says, now later on, when you guys go to do this, you're going to select the lamb on the 10th day of Nisan, and you're going to spend four days examining it to make sure that it's a lamb without blemish. And you'll sacrifice it at twilight on the 14th day of Nisan. Okay? So it didn't happen right then. Right then they took the lamb. They slaughtered it immediately, right? With haste. And they took the blood and they put it upon the doorpost, the lentils of, of the door. Okay? So that when the death angel came through, the death angel would see the blood on the door and he would pass over, pass over that house. Think about this. If the Egyptians knew of it, and I think that they did, and the Egyptians would have taken a goat or a sheep and they would have slaughtered it, and they would have put the blood on the lentils of the door, do you think the death angel would have passed over? Yes, 
Again, we know there was a mixed multitude that went out of Egypt. So there were Egyptians who went with the Israelites out. They recognized who the true God was. And just as we saw in Sunday school, as God's talking to Tyrians and God's talking to the, to the um, Sidonians and God's talking to the, all the other nations, he's doing all these things in order that they may know that he is Yahweh, that he is the one and only true God. And it's the same thing that happened in Egypt. So in the midst of that, though, that's what's happening. So God is coming down. He's showing the Israelites. He's showing the Egyptians that he is the only true God. And he is the end. Then in that light, he is the only deliverer. He is the one who will deliver them. But they will be delivered, if you would, through what? Through blood. There would be the shedding of life to bring the deliverance. Throughout Israel's history, then, they had both sin sacrifices, which we'll talk more about when we get to the crucifixion of Christ, because on the cross, he literally fulfilled, you can go back into Leviticus chapter 7 and read all this, he literally fulfills the sin sacrifice. It's so beautiful, so, so beautiful picture. But he also fulfills the Passover sacrifice, because he will be sacrificed at the time when Israel is going to be sacrificing the Passover. In fact, when he is crucified, there's the earthquake, right? When he dies, not when he's just crucified, but at the ninth hour, three o'clock in the afternoon, right when they were going to begin to, to sacrifice the Passovers, right? There's the earthquake, there's the, the, the temple, um, come on, the veil is torn in two. There's this chaos at the temple. They can't be sacrificing the, the, um, the Passover lambs. Why? Because the Passover lamb was sacrificed. It's exciting stuff. Okay? Um, so we have this whole thing coming in that there's a whole history. So as, as they come into this Passover, they would have the Seder. And they would, they would do the Seder in a, in a way. And part of the Seder was that they would do specific things during the Passover Seder. Okay? And so I, I like to think that Jesus probably did a lot of these things with his disciples as well. And so... Um, it probably didn't look exactly like that. But one of the, the primary things in this Passover celebration was the bread. Okay, um, Now, I'm not going to get into the afikomen and such because that came after the destruction of the temple. But it, it would be um, interesting for you all to, if you don't know about the afikomen, A-F-I-K-A-M-E-N, to research it and look it up. I wanted to do it today, but I know I didn't have time. Um, because what they do, here I'm going to talk about it, that they, they, this is after the temple. Anyways, they have these three matzahs in, in representing Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but they don't know that. It's so cool. They take the middle one out. They break it in half. And they hide half of it till the end of the dinner. And then it's redeemed. It's so exciting. I mean, it's, anyways, they have this, and Afikoman by itself means he came. And so it's just really kind of cool. Anyways, so they celebrate this thing, and, and, it, and it's all there. So, but I don't have time for that. There's just a whole lot more there. So, but the bread is, is the part. They have the matzot, okay? The matzot is, is part of the, 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 the celebration, and they would, they would break the bread, and they would share it with one another, okay? And there are two aspects of the bread. First of all, it's the bread of affliction, okay? And that comes from the whole concept of, well, in fact, tell you what, somebody go to Deuteronomy 16, verse 3, and read that, okay? Somebody want to grab that? Let me... Um, 
Somebody want to take the Isaiah 53 passage? Okay, who's got Deuteronomy 16? Okay, so you two got those two? All right. Somebody else go to Galatians 5 for me. Who's got that? Okay, Richard. Um, and somebody grab Isaiah 61. Okay. Uh, it's going to be verse 1 and then verse 13. Okay? So let's, let's start with Deuteronomy 16. Okay, so this part of the Passover celebration, okay, which we know that the 14th day of Nisan, okay, is the, the day of Passover, which has been transitioned into the day of preparation. And then beginning the 15th day of Nisan, I'm going backwards for you guys. So the 15th day of Nisan, for seven days was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Okay, it became one of becoming that eight day feast to them, but really the 14th day, which was Passover. It became a day of preparation. But it all, the whole thing of it wanted to be called Passover. Okay? So in that then, what is telling us that this is called the bread of affliction. You'd think it would be the bread of rejoicing. Right? Because they were leaving. But it was a, to remember. To remember the affliction that you were in. Don't forget where you came from. Don't forget what you were saved from. We forget. We forget what we were. In fact, the Israelites forgot so bad that they started to what? They wanted the leeks and onions and the melons all over again. You know? How sadly. It was a bread of affliction. A bread of affliction. Isaiah 53. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not escape. This is going to be a theme throughout this thing. That Jesus didn't just die for sin. Rather, my sin was placed upon him. I don't have a lot of time for this, but we'll talk about it again in a few weeks when we get to the crucifixion. Can I use you? Okay. So, when in the Old Covenant, when that sin sacrifice was made, Okay, he's my, now my lamb, okay? You get to be Jesus, though, too, in the same light. That's, yes, you have to wait for the moment, though. Um, uh, yeah, it's just, just, just going to be a quick moment. So, at that point, I'm, I'm the guy who sinned, and I need to offer the, the sacrifice, right? I would come up, and I'd place my head upon that sacrifice, and I would confess my sin. What would happen was kind of like a, a Spock and mind meld thing here, you know? That, that my, my sins would pass from me to the lamb. And then, when I slaughtered the lamb, what happened was, not just a, the life was just being given, but my sin was destroyed. My sin was eradicated. It was gone. That became a lamb of affliction. Because that lamb that was innocent before, now, positionally, legally, 
if you would, is the bearer of my sin. And so when he dies, not just the payment goes, but my sin is destroyed. It's gone. As far as the east is from, the west. It's gone. So, when you came to Jesus, you don't comprehend this at that moment. But you're putting your hands on the head of Jesus. And when you confess your sins, guess what? Jesus becomes them. Jesus became my adultery. Jesus became my anger. Jesus became my thievery. Jesus became my jealousy. Jesus became my, my enviousness and my, and, and my, my um, wantonness. That's pretty yucky, isn't it? He was the bread of affliction. God put our sins upon him. And so this bread is my body, which is broken, not for me, not for my father. It's broken for, for you. I'm doing all this for you. If you don't mind, a little side. I'm doing all this for you, Judas. I mean, Peter, John, James, Alphaeus, you got it. Judas, go do what you're going to do. Do it quickly. How sad. There are people in the world. They'll hear that message. I did all this for you, and they still what? Just walk away, right? They don't want to hear. But what about us? What about us? What, what about the ones who know? Do you cherish what Jesus has done for you? When, when we come to celebrate the Lord's Supper, first Sunday of the month, we could do it every week. But we do it first Sunday of the month. Do you take time to prepare yourselves for that moment? Do you understand what we're celebrating when Jesus did that? He died because I was such a vow individual. And you can put it on Bob and say, yeah, he died because Bob was such a vow individual. But look in the mirror and realize that what? He died for, died for your decadence. This is an amazing thing to me. It was the bread of affliction, but it was also then, as we read, um, still there um, in 53, verse 5. Read, read the end of that again, um, Chuck, verse 5. Sorry. It's okay. Yeah, just whatever. Go over or five to By his stripes we are healed. The chastisement of our sins was upon him. He was bruised for our iniquity, that we would have peace with God. How cool is that? He gives us liberty. So Galatians 5, I think that's you, Brian, right? Verse 1 first. Oh, no, Richard, was that you? Galatians 5? I'm sorry. Verse 1. So for freedom, he has set us free. So don't place yourself under a yoke of 
slavery again. So we have freedom. We have liberty. You're spo- and this is something you're going to hear in the modern church. All about your liberty. All about your freedom. That Jesus died so you could be set free. Don't let anybody put you under a bondage. What is verse 13? This is all context. What does verse 13 say? So God gave me liberty, God gave me freedom for a purpose. What was the purpose of me getting liberty and freedom through his death on the cross? To serve. To, to, to actually sacrifice myself. That, that in seeing his sacrifice for me, I would emulate that and sacrifice myself for others. That it wouldn't be about me being having occasion for my own flesh to do what I want to do. So should I sin, as Paul says to the Romans, right? So shall I continue to sin that grace might abound? And the answer is what? May it never be so. Certainly not. That's exactly right. Isaiah 61. So Isaiah perfectly declares this statement about Messiah. That when Messiah comes, he's going to give liberty. We read in Luke 4, we don't need to go there. You can go there and check me out later on this. Okay? In Luke chapter 4, that's where Jesus, in the synagogue, he's given the writings of Isaiah. He reads that passage, and he sits down and he says, Today, this is fulfilled in your presence. Wow. That's pretty, uh, pretty straight. I mean, that's... You know, people say, when did, when did he ever say? He said it. I mean, it was pretty clear. I mean, he was, he was right out there. That's why they tried to kill him at the, after, the, after that point, you know, because they didn't want him. Romans 6 is all about the liberty and not offering yourself then as a slave again. To whom you offer yourself as a slave to obey, you are the one slave to whom you obey, whether of sin leading unto death or of obedience leading unto righteousness. Christ has given you freedom. It's not just the bread of affliction. It's the bread of liberty, is what his body is. But then we come to the cup. This is extremely exciting, okay? And I don't have a lot of time, so i got to fly through this. But in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five, 25, we read that he also took the cup after the supper, okay? There are four cups of blessing as a part of the Bissach, a part of the Passover at Seder, okay? And so two of those cups are drunk. Hopefully I'm saying that properly. Anyways, are drunk. Drinking, drinking. Anyways, prior to <laughs> the meal, and they are whatever that term is, drink, drink, drunk. Anyways, after the, the meal, okay? And so, but it all comes from Exodus chapter 6, verse 6 to 7. Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am Yahweh. I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. That's the first cup of blessing. I will bring you out. Second cup of blessing. I will rescue you from their bondage. Third cup of blessing. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with a great judgment. Fourth cup of blessing. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am Yahweh your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Okay? That's all from Exodus chapter 6. Okay? Talking about this Passover celebration. And so, within the Pesach Seder, within this Passover celebration, they would have these four. And so they, they, would, they would have the two cups... Then they would have the meal, and then immediately the meal was over, they would have the third cup. 
this is exciting. Okay? Because they had the first two cups. Jesus broke the bread. They had the meal. And then when they were done eating, when supper was over, he took the cup. Which cup? The third cup. The cup of redemption. And what does he say? When he takes the cup, he specifically says, Then he took the cup, gave it thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. This cup represents my blood, which I'm about ready to shed for you to establish the new covenant, which goes back to Jeremiah. Okay, we don't have time to go into Jeremiah 31 and Jeremiah 33. Okay, but we've talked about that going through our studies of Jeremiah in the, old, in, in the Sunday school time, right? And so that God was going to establish this new covenant. They've been looking forward to this moment. Jesus here in his upper room with his, his closest men, right, says to them what? It's getting ready to happen. I am getting ready to sanctify, to consecrate. So, it's important. It was the blood of the consecration. We don't have time to go to Hebrews 9. Okay? I would love, but please go. Read it. Study it. Check it out. Okay? If I'm wrong, tell everybody. Okay? It's a blood, for real. Okay? This is, it's, be not many masters such as the greater condemnation. I'm going to give an account to God for everything I teach. If I teach wrong, I want it to be known. Okay? I want it to be borne out. So, the blood of the consecration is there, okay? That Jesus, when he died, his blood consecrated this new covenant. Without the shedding of blood, all things have to be consecrated, okay? With the mediator, okay? But we're also told it's the blood of remission because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Now, what's exciting about this word remission is we think of it as payment. It's not payment. This word in the Greek is aphiomi, which is the word for pardon. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth. It's about the pardon. I'm guilty. I'm on death row. I deserve to die. But the governor pardons me. I don't deserve it. It wasn't like I was innocent. He's, oh, that guy's really innocent. Let him out. It's not a pardon. A pardon means I'm what? I'm guilty. But what I deserve is going to be set aside. And it's set aside because Jesus is paying the price. I'm before the judge and I owe Five million dollars because I was the guy who threw my cigarette out and, and burnt down all the forests of California. Okay, we laugh, but you get it, right? Because when they find a person, they, they, they want to hold them for that, right? Do I got five million dollars to pay for all the... No, of course not. But the judge happens to be a multimillionaire. And after he finds me and sentences me, he takes off his robe and he comes down and says... I'll pay the fine. I'll, I'll, I'll take that upon myself. Now, that's minimal. That's just money, right? But that's what God did for me. I deserve eternal condemnation. That's mind-boggling to me. When Jesus was on the cross and he said, My God, my God, why have you 
forsaken me. In one eternal iota of a moment, I don't comprehend that. There was separation in the Godhead. That's, I think, why Jesus was sweating as it was drops of blood in the garden. He'd known what was getting ready to happen, but it's that, that concept that, of the separation. He was going to take my eternal condemnation upon himself, and he was going to bring victory through it. But he conquered. He conquered that death. Physical, not just physical. Social, not just social. But spiritual death as well. And so that I can have fellowship with God one more time. His blood was the payment for sins. And so we know from 1 John chapter 2, and he's the propitiation for my sins and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. When Jesus died, this gets rid of this limited atonement stuff. He didn't die just for the elect. He died for who? The sins of the whole world. Everybody on this earth has their sins paid for. Now, I'm not talking about universal salvation. They still have to what? Receive it. They've got to claim it. So the guy comes to your door with that big letter from Ed McMahon saying that you won the, uh, the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes. And you're thinking to yourself, I never played. You know? But you want it. But you got to what? You got to take it. You got to go get it. You receive in the mail that, that um, Donald Trump and all the other billionaires of the world got together and they want everybody to have a million dollars. They just want the kindness of heart. They want it. And you get this letter saying the million dollars is sitting for you down at Wells Fargo. You just got to go claim it. More than likely, you're going to get that letter. You're going to read it and you're going to say what? It's junk mail. <laughs> and you're never going to what? Get, you're not going to claim it. You're not going to get the million dollars. You know, sadly, many people around the world say what? That's just junk mail. Just a guy wrote it. And they never claim the eternal salvation that's already been paid for. It's sitting there waiting for them to have it. How sad. Again, they are to be pitied. Not to be angered at. Pitied. One day they're going to find out. That's why there's going to be na- the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. There's going to be a lot of weeping. People who didn't claim what was theirs to claim. Payment of sins, pardon of sinners. As far as the east is from the west. The implications is where we get into the omniscience of Christ again. The physical resurrection of Messiah. Jesus says, I will no longer drink of the fruit of this cup with you until I drink it with you. Get again in paradise, in heaven. How cool is this? Jesus already knows what's going to happen. He knows the death, burial, resurrection, but he knows there's going to be a period of time and there's going to come a time when he's going to come again. He's going to receive us unto himself, right? And then there's going to be the wedding supper of the Lamb, Revelation chapter 19, which we'll get to in a moment, right? So, but in that, I'm jumping ahead of myself, he knows he's going to resurrect. Because I'm going to drink it with you again. This death isn't what? Final. But there's then the physical resurrection of, of the redeemed as well. The, the believers. Where we're going to drink it with him at the wedding supper of the Lamb. How fun is that? Listen to what he says. I'm no longer, let me go find my spot. I say to you, verse 29, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from this now on until the day when I drink it with you again in my Father's kingdom. Does anybody remember? I should have put this, this slide back up and I didn't do it. Anybody remember what the fourth, fourth cup was? 
I will be your God, and you shall be my people. He's waiting to that moment. He didn't drink at the fourth cup. I'm drinking the third cup, that's it. I'm waiting for the fourth cup when I drink it with you in paradise. When I pick up the cup and I say, I shall be your God, and you shall be my people. Then they shall know, then you shall know, bringing all that Old Testament stuff back into this, right? That I am Yahweh. I am Yahweh. Jesus said, John 8, 24, unless you believe I am, I am, you will die in your sins. Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. It's so exciting to me. This is all about the great I am, who he is. So, what does the Lord's Supper represent to you? Is it just a fancy painting? Is it just cookies and Kool-Aid? Just crackers and juice? To the little kids, it might be. But as they grow, hopefully they what? They learn the significance of it. But we who are older, it should have a great significance. Do you treat the commemoration of the, with the importance that Scripture places on it? We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that, um, that, that we're supposed to eat and drink not in an unworthy manner, because those who eat and drink in an unworthy manner eat and drink judgment to themselves, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep, which is a, a euphemism for what? Death. For this reason, many are even dying. Because they abuse the commemoration of the Last Supper. Is there then a need to change the way you think, and therefore change the way you act? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your goodness to us. We know that you alone are God. Thank you, Lord, for the commemoration of the Lord's Supper, which you've given to us. Lord, I pray that um, as we participate again with it in two weeks, Lord, that we would spend this next two weeks meditating upon who you are and what you have done for us. Lord, that we would not take what you have done for granted. Forgive us, Lord, for that. We do. We just are so overwhelmed with your grace that we forget about your grace. God, I pray that we would magnify you in everything we say and everything we do. In Jesus' name, amen.